We are continuing our series in the Psalms this morning. I would direct you to Psalm 139, 139. Psalms are right in the middle of your Bible. And so if you open up your Bible right in the middle, I trust that you'll be able to navigate your way over to Psalm 139. At least the first major portion of the Psalm is a favorite for many, probably familiar to many of you. And uh, we will therefore begin. I'm going to read, let's see. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. The sermon will continue beyond verse 6, but I want to give us a kind of introduction and find our feet in these first six verses. Psalm 139, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. What you have just heard is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. It is good and profitable for us to hear it, to receive it as it is preached to our hearts for all to the glory of Jesus. This is indeed the word of the Lord. And again, we say... Thanks be to God. And so this Psalm 139 is broken into four parts. Verses 1 through 6 are a kind of celebration of the omniscience of God. That's a fancy word that just means the God who knows all things. Uh, verses 7 through 12 are a celebration of omnipresence, which is, an, which is a theological way of saying that God is everywhere. There's nowhere that He is not. And then verses 13 through 18 are a hymn to the, you might say, the creativity of God, speaking of how he knit us together in our mother's womb. And then verses 19 through 24 are basically, therefore, based on this God who is omniscient, knowing everything, omnipresent, who's everywhere, who is a creative artist that leaves us in awe and amazement of his good work. So what? Therefore what? Verses 19 through 24 are kind of the, you might say, the ethical implications and applications of all of that. So we will begin in the first part, verses 1 through 6. David begins by singing, by informing us that this God knows him. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Now, I don't know if this is where the concept of the Christmas song, He sees you when you're sleeping, He knows when you're awake, comes from. All I can say is, I hope not. David says that this God has searched him and knows him, all parts of him. He says, you know when I, when I sit down, when I rise up. In other words, in the mundane tasks, something as simple as sitting down and getting out of bed. You saw those simple, mundane things, Lord. Not like we only get on God's radar whenever our lives are interesting or exciting. David begins with some of the most mundane aspects of being human. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways, verse 3. That last bit, acquainted with all my ways, meaning you know all of my behavior. You know all of my actions. Moms and dads, you know well that as your kid gets older and older, you become pretty good, though not perfect, perhaps, at predicting what they're going to do in given situations. 
What David is saying here is that our God knows us to the core of our being, and he's saying this God knows how I act and how I live. Even before I speak, verse 4, you know what I'm going to say. Now that should leave us kind of stunned. How often is it that words come out of your mouth before you can stop them? Right? Okay, so a few of you said yes, and the rest of you, if you said no, are lying. Okay? You often can surprise yourself with your own speech, right? Maybe especially in an argument, right? Something comes out, and then the next thing you know, you're backpedaling. No, no, that's not what I meant to say. That's good for you to know, especially on, you know, your Mother's Day. Ladies, I want you to know something about men. If something we said can be interpreted in two ways, and one of them makes you feel sad or hurt or angry, be assured that we meant the other one. And all the gentlemen said... Amen, yeah. This reflects that we often don't say what we mean, or we don't mean the words that come out of our mouths to come out in the way that they do. Or perhaps worse than that, when they do come out precisely as we mean them, they don't really have the effect or the impact we want them to. Maybe, maybe it, that was what we meant to say, but it ended up being far more hurtful than we thought. Or even that was what we meant to say, but it ended up just falling flat, not being as exciting or inspiring as we thought, or, or compelling or effectual. This is a very enigmatic and seemingly difficult to control part of life. That's probably why David picks it, right? Probably why David selects it out of the different human activities that he could have used to, to give you the sense that God knows everything, past, present, future. God knows the words that are coming even when you don't. God is not surprised by them even when you are. This reminds us that God is outside of time. Outside of time. If you think of all of time as a river, okay, with a bunch of, of bends and curves in it, such that, you know, the, the point of the river you're on, the present, if you were to look back, there's, there's a curve in the river, so you can't see all the way back, right? That's, that's past that's beyond you. And there's a curve kind of coming up in the future. You, you can't see really what's ahead of you all the way anyway. So if you imagine this sort of winding river where there's only a limited amount you can see in terms of what's in front of you and what's behind you, God is on the mountain overlooking the whole stream, if you like. Past, present, and future is before Him. We speak of God being able to see the future, but that's not really the best way of saying it. That makes it sound like God is bound to the present, sitting in the boat with us, and just happens to be able to see around the next corner. But actually, all of time is before Him. Timothy Keller observes that this is how God sees, that God sees everything, but you only see a little slice. You see yourself as young, or you see yourself as old. You see yourself as, as whatever, but He sees all of you. Therefore, only God knows who you are. Because He knows who you're going to be in five years. He knows who you were five years ago, which by the way, you probably kind of hate that person five to ten years ago. We all kind of hate the person we were five to ten years ago. It's just kind of how life works. The bad news is five to ten years from now, you're going to hate this person. I know, <laughs> perfectly timed. And so, God, Keller continues, therefore only God knows who you are. God knows you infinitely more than you know yourself. So we're surrounded by God's knowledge, by His omniscience. Verse 5 in our text, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Now that actually sounds a bit uncomfortable and it's meant to. It's almost like I'm, I'm trapped <laughs> 
by, by your hand and, and, and by your plan. I'm, I'm overwhelmed, verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and it's, it's out of my reach. I cannot attain it. And so we are confronted with the God who is everywhere. And we'll continue reading. We'll come back to verse 6 later. Where shall I go from your spirit? David asks. Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, then he goes through this list. If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shale in the depths of the, the dark places where the dead go, that's the idea, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, so, so if the rising of the dawn were like wings that could lift me up and take me far, far away from where I am, in the uttermost parts where, kind of think of like undiscovered islands, they have been discovered by you, even there your hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Verses 8 through 12 there are an exposition of verse 7. We call that a move from the general, a broad statement, to the specific, verses 8 through 12, how it kind of works out in specifics. A general principle is stated and then it gets unpacked. So verses 8 through 12 are the answer to verse 7's question. Okay, verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. And in fact, what I want you to understand, this Hebrew word that gets translated presence, where can I go from your presence, it's actually the Hebrew word for face. Where can I flee from your face? It's good for you to know that because I think that those two words kind of have a different sense to them, presence the presence of God versus the face of God. Because of the influence, I think, of, of uh, mysticism, we tend to think of God's presence like the force from Star Wars. It's like a sort of vibe or feeling or atmosphere, uh, almost like a sort, of, a sort of cloudy, foggy gas that maybe gets released at a, at a really good concert. But God's presence is not like a gas or a fog that gets released into a room and spread out so that everybody senses a little piece of it. What David is saying is, I can't go anywhere without being face to face with you. That kind of has a different sense, doesn't it? There's a huge difference between everywhere I go, I get some sort of tiny whiff or, or, or element of your presence that I might have the chance to sort of breathe in versus everywhere I go, you and I are face to face. God is not spread out everywhere like a, like a pie crust spread out over the counter getting thinner and thinner and thinner. It is rather that all of God is everywhere. So I want you to, want you to synthesize the two things we've learned about our God in the psalm so far. We've learned that He knows everything. So David is saying, you know everything about me. And number two, that He is everywhere. Okay? Knows everything about you is everywhere. And, and all of him is everywhere, not just he's, he's spread out in tiny pieces. There is a sense in which those two things put together should discomfort you a bit. When you read God knows everything, the reaction in your, in your flesh and in mine is if there's a God who knows everything about me, every fault, every lie, including the lies I tell myself, every hatred, every fear, every pompous, self-righteous way that I think I'm so fantastic, and better than fill in the blank. 
better than my peers, better than my parents, better than my ancestors, better than my teachers. God knows every perverted and twisted thought I've ever had, every disturbing and messed up thing I've ever done, every embarrassment and humiliation I've ever known. If God is that, if His, if his knowledge is that all-encompassing, frankly, I want Him to stay away. Anyone who knows that much about me is a liability. But what's the second part? Verses 7 through 12, he's not staying away. He can't because I can't get away from him. So now there's a real problem. A God who knows everything about me is this close. I could deal with a God who knows everything and stays away. And maybe in my flesh I could deal with a God who is near, but who's kind of like a sweet, senile grandfather who has no idea what's really going on. But the God we are given knows us to the uttermost and we are ever before His face. Look at the next part, verse 13. Basically, it's, the next part is, and it's been this way since day one. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Sorry, I think I read a bit ahead. Oh, no, I didn't. All right. What is, what is he doing here? David wants to sing about how God knows everything, right? That he is everywhere. But then further, you've been before his face since before you had a face, right? He's the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, a place full of mystery, darkness, and unfathomable engineering. Now, this is a time before ultrasounds, okay? But let's be honest. Even in the present time of ultrasounds, ultrasounds do not give you a sense of like overwhelming clarity. <laughs> you first look at that ultrasound, you see a baby on the ultrasound, you're like, well, my love, I think we're going to have an alien. <laughs> That's a funny looking creature in there, right? And so even, even in our day of ultrasound, this is still a, a mysterious place, the, the womb is, where, where babies are formed. He's the one who knit you together in the place full of mystery. He's been with you since the beginning, and you are before his face every day until the end. Look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days of my life, right? So, so day one from back in the womb, and I just note in passing, won't do a whole sermon on it, but I just note in passing, uh, your life starts from day one in the womb, okay? Not the day one that you get out of the womb, okay? Make appropriate conclusions about when life begins. Thank you. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, my days. Right? So God knows me from day one, and apparently every day after that, he's got in a book. God has made you, and God has planned out your days. He's God at the very start. He's God every day after. And you live life before His face. Not just in His presence, sort of broadly, generally speaking, but before His face. And what does that mean for us? Well, as I've been saying through the sermon so far, that's kind of threatening. This God we cannot escape. 
That doesn't mean we don't have our ways of believing we can escape. That's why David wrote the psalm. Because even if we theologically affirm the idea that God is everywhere, when we sin, we are temporarily believing that we are escaping notice. When we waste our lives on useless endeavors, giving away all our time to pointless or sinful pleasures that serve no profit whatsoever, we believe, whether or not we confess, we believe in our hearts that we are in a dark corner somewhere being unnoticed. But what the psalm tells us is there's no such thing as an unnoticed life. No such thing as an unnoticed sin. No such thing as a purposeless day or even, even a purposeless struggle. And also, very importantly, we exist the way we are, the way you are, the way you exist and who you are. You are that way very precisely because God meant to. The way you've been from day one. The way He designed you. And I would, you feel free to contrast that with whatever ideas you've developed about yourself. The way that God has designed you, He meant to. Most of us, if we are honest, live lives where we are, I mean, at least for long portions of time, just profoundly unhappy with ourselves. Our culture's answer to that is to dedicate tons of resources for instance, in government education and in professional therapy, to convince you that you are good and lovely in and of yourself. We call it self-esteem. And the reason why you have to have that constantly shouted at you through a proverbial bullhorn before you will believe it is that we don't really ever buy it. And if we do, the only thing that flows from that is the most hilarious kind of arrogance where people are progressively making themselves more and more repulsive while shouting, look how beautiful I am. And you'd better acknowledge it and love it. And so it is either, so it is either, here's kind of the way I would lay that, lay that out. Either focus on me, for I am ugly and pity me, right? That happens a lot. It sounds weird the way I just put it. But there's a lot of, of self-pity that, that cries out, focus on me because I'm pitiful, recognize me and, and how pitiful I am. And then there's focus on me because I'm beautiful, which is, which is a call to, to worship, right? Worship me. So what does our psalm say? It says, you made me. Let me find the verse, sorry. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And therefore, I feel really good about me. Right? That, that's what it says, isn't it? No. No, David sings verse 14. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Notice the action. The action is not, I can finally affirm my own beauty because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It's, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And verse 15, that I was intricately woven together. In the uh, Latin Vulgate, the, the phrasing is occupictus sum, that I am painted as with a needle. Right? Really precise needlework. You see, the goal of life is not self-esteem, but to be at peace with yourself and with God. And that kind of peace is a product of loving God and what He has done, not a product of finally coming around to loving yourself. You already love yourself even if you spend all day thinking about how ugly you are. 
you are still going around obsessed with the most important person in the universe, namely you. I mean, you, you might be ugly, but at least you're important, right? <laughs> if you ever wonder, though, why you are stuck in a vortex of self-hatred, it's because, in part at least, you despise what God has done and you don't trust Him. If you ever wonder why you're stuck in a vortex of vanity and pride, it's because you think you are God and you don't like the idea of someone else being more qualified for the job. What you really must see, what causes David awe and amazement, he's saying, I will not presume to flee, those are the previous verses, I will not presume to try to flee from the one who made me with such breathtaking complexity. And you are complex. You might be disappointed in something about yourself, in your appearance, in your weight, in your hair color, in your height, in your ability to be worshipped by others, but you are complex. You will surely admit that. Even you don't understand you most of the time, but God does. But where this leads David is not to satisfaction in himself, but rather to wonder and awe of his creator. Verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. You see, we, we begin every worship service with the words, let us worship the triune God. In so doing, we are beginning with a confession that we are worshiping a God we do not fully, completely, comprehensively, totally understand. And what good news that is. Because if you fully understand your God, you made Him. He is your creation. But this God is holy. This God is everywhere. He knows everything. He knit you together. Will we not be in awe? Dare we hold back our amazement so that we can protect our pride? This is what verse 19 is about. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. What happened? We were, we were having a happy psalm, and then David got mad, <laughs> seemingly out of nowhere. I actually have a particular memory of this psalm. I freely confess to you. It was, I think it was when I was still an associate pastor, and I wanted a psalm that we could read together corporately as a body. And I freely confess I did the dumb thing where I started reading Psalm 139. I said, that's a good one. Let's read that one together. And I copied and pasted and threw it up on a series of slides. And man, did we trip and fall when we got to verse 19. It was like, oh yeah, I mean, I saw men form substance and so on. How precious are your thoughts. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. <laughs> right? We kind of got tripped up there. What's happening here? Things got very uncomfortable. In fact, probably my favorite musical setting of this psalm is by a group called the Sons of Korah. They're a, a Scottish group. And so if you want to look them up after the service, uh, K-O-R-A-H, Sons of Korah. It would be very difficult to sing congregationally, but great for listening in the car. But guess what? They only go to verse 18 and then they end the song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you can kind of understand why. It almost feels like a separate psalm, but it's not. So what's going on here? Let's, let's think about what we've learned so far, shall we? In the presence of a God this powerful, this holy, David rages against an unholy world, against a blasphemous world. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Then you thought that was bad. Verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. Now that's a troubling passage, and I can tell you that more than a few commentators just completely back out of it. They just say, well, he said hate. Jesus said love your enemies, so this is invalid. Like, go with, go with Jesus. This part of the psalm is invalid. Don't say it. Don't sing it. Don't confess it. It's never been satisfying for me, as you know. This is the sovereign God who knows the thoughts of all men. Their kind thoughts, their nice thoughts, but also their evil thoughts, actions, and words, which are in front of Him like an ongoing parade of sin with all the members of the marching band in the parade having their eyes covered so they don't have to make eye contact with this God who sees them and whose face is ever before them. But I think this becomes a lot clearer if we look at the construction of the way verses uh, 21 and 22 work. The point of these two verses, the point, the point of these two verses is that David is saying, because of all the evil in the world and because of the goodness of the God I've just described, I am on his side, not the world's side. I'm on his side, not the world's side, okay? Uh, and that's the last bit of verse 22, I count them my enemies. So how does he express it? Well, he expresses it with grief, with anger, and with, uh, with this word complete or, or perfect and with understanding. So I'm going to start, start with a concept. Sorry, I got kind of ahead of myself. Here in the psalm, I want to show you something called parallelism, which is very common in Hebrew poetry. A parallelism is when an author states something and then restates it, Okay state something, and then uses different words to say the same thing again. You can also have reverse parallelism where he'll say something and then say the opposite, right? And so you're supposed to see a contrast. Well, let's look at, uh, let's look at verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you, right? So that's the parallelism. There is a hatred and an abhorring, a despising of those who rebel and set themselves against God. And then, uh, then you have the next verse, I hate them with a complete hatred. I admit I prefer the King James here, a perfect hatred. Or think of it in terms, the, the Hebrew word is difficult here. Basically what it means is um, the, the, the end or purpose for which something exists or, or is designed. So in other words, if, I, if I'm ever supposed to uh, exercise hate, right now I'm using it in the perfect way. And then the last bit, I count them my enemies. Here's what I'm going to invite you to do. We're going to work this backwards. So go to verse 22, and we're going to work this backwards, by which I think it's going to make more sense to you. So step one, I count them my enemies. Nothing wrong with that, okay? 
In fact, having enemies is assumed by Jesus when Jesus, as you're all familiar, tells us to love our enemies. The assumption is that you'll have them. Next, you have a despising that is properly placed, that is perfect and complete. And that's exactly what I want for you, Grace Presbyterian Church, that you love your enemies and that you exercise precisely the right amount of hatred, alternative word can be grief or anger towards them and all their blasphemies, even while you love them and pray for their conversion. Can you do both at once? Yes, you absolutely can. The modern world says you cannot. Then why perfect hatred? Okay, why put it that way? The way I would, <coughs> the word there for, uh, and the word there for loathe above it, the idea is uh, anger that nauseates me, is how I would put it. Okay? So the hatred that he speaks of is, in other words, perfectly measured out hatred and despising of what they are doing. And if you're thinking right now, well, surely, Brian, he means love the sinner and hate the sin, right? But you and I both know that's not what it sounds like he's saying. It sounds like he has hatred for people. My answer there is just, while I'm not entirely opposed to that expression as a way of communicating who we are as Christians, loving sinners and hating sinners, that's absolutely true about who we are. Biblically speaking, if you rephrase that to say, who you are and what you do are two separate things, the biblical authors would probably say, I don't know what you mean. Okay? I don't know what you mean. Right? And so, so, so the love the sinner, hate the sin is useful for us as an expression to help us think through the ways we behave towards sinners. But biblically speaking, I'll just say that the line between who you are and what you do is a lot thinner than, than we might like. I think we in our hearts prefer to say, well, well, I did that, but that's not really who I am. Biblically speaking, that, that, that's just not a distinction that makes sense. And so, then go up one more, okay? Uh, uh, hating with perfectly placed hatred, and again, the modern lie, it's impossible to hate and to love at the same time, but yet, but yet, God hates sinners. He does. You know what else he does? He loves them. God hates sinners, he hates their deeds, he hates their rebellion, he hates their destruction, and you know what he did? He sent his son to die for them. Both of those happening at once. So how do we do this? How do we exercise this kind of attitude, even this kind of hatred that David talks about? My answer is very, very carefully, beloved, with the understanding that we will often fail, which will be a great occasion for repentance, which is why we start our service with a confession of sin. We, sometimes we underdo it by never discussing our anger against the blasphemy that happens against a holy God. Sometimes we overdo it by becoming more like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable that says, thank you God for not making me like those people that I hate. So how can we have the peace that David sets forward in this psalm that's what he calls us to really. So we, you have this problem of a God who sees everything, knows everything, and, and I am face to face before him. It's terrifying. So, and, and yet David exercises peace in the midst of that, of this holy God who knows everything about me. How does he do that? I'm going to go over the four points I've covered so far. By knowing, 
We, we can have the peace that David has by knowing that we are seen by this God, by knowing that this God is near to us, by knowing that we are made by Him, fashioned by Him, and by knowing that He is holy. Most importantly, <coughs> knowing that this God who sees us completely, who knows us completely, who is nearer to us in a way that makes us sweat, that God has also completely forgiven us in Christ. And that should astonish us. It, in fact, it should make you say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Because this is actually, this is actually the deepest longing of your heart. To be fully known and fully loved. It's actually the deepest desire that's in your heart. To be fully known, to have everything known about you, you might say, and yet to be fully loved anyway. It often causes a lot of problems in marriages when people have one but not the other. When someone is fully known but not fully loved, they feel like garbage. Someone else knows me down to my very core. They know all the worst things that I've done and they hate me. They despise me. It's crushing. When someone is fully loved but not fully known, they feel like a fraud. Someone else loves me but only because they don't know the real me. They would stop loving me if they knew who I really was. So, they, so, so I live a lie. I keep my sins secret. I flee honest confession. And it's crushing. Another psalm talks about my bones drying up right, until I confessed. What this psalm gives you is a holy God who knows all of your sins, all of them. And from this God, there's no escape. There's no corner where you can sin quietly and remain unnoticed. For darkness is as light to him and night is as bright as day. And when you come to the cross of Jesus, fully known, there is a blessing that you find in the Savior who tells you you are fully loved as well. This is the very essence of the gospel, that we are fully known and fully loved, which is astonishing. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. We are almost terrified to believe it. Do we dare hope that our God offers us this kind of freedom and peace to be fully known by our Maker and fully loved? Fully known and fully forgiven. What would that cause us to do? How would it cause us to talk? How would it cause us to live? How would it cause us to sing? Look at verse 23 as we wrap up together. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, I note in passing, what a perfect thing to pray after you've just confessed hatred. Perfect, complete, righteous hatred. And the very next thing he says, God, make sure that my heart's clean. A pretty good practice. Yeah? A pretty good practice when we confess our hatred for the sin that we see around us. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you hear the freedom there? 
that you would come before God saying, search me and know me. You cannot and you will not do that before the face of a God that you are terrified of, that you are possessed with a kind of servile fear of. If you are trying to hide from God, you will never speak this way to Him. But if you are fully known and fully loved, you will be able to say, Lord, track down every bit of sin in me and expose it so that it can be killed and lead me in the better way for the rest of my life, which I can ask in total confidence because I am fully known and fully loved by Jesus Christ. Amen. And so our Father, we ask that you would grant that this would be true of us, that you would grant us the holy confidence that comes by your Holy Spirit alone to say, search us, O God, and know our hearts. I pray, Lord, for those who have and are bearing this morning unconfessed sin, that they've remained hidden in a corner, not hidden from you, but hidden from those who need to hear the word of confession, that they might be fully known and fully loved, that they might receive that from their Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remake households as we live before your face, that you would remake this church as we live before your face, that you would remake this city and even this nation as we live before your face. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.